Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Father Sean O'Sheridan, TOR, is the president of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Before he entered the Franciscan Third Order Regular, he graduated in 1985 with a Bachelor of Science in Pharmacy from the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy. In 1990, he earned his Juris Doctor from the University of Pittsburgh School of Law and spent the next 10 years as a practicing attorney in Sacramento and Pittsburgh, focusing on healthcare litigation primarily with representation of hospitals and physicians. In 2007, Father Sean graduated from Washington Theological Union with his Master of Divinity. That same year, he also obtained his licentiate in canon law from the Catholic University, University of America School of Canon Law. In 2009, he then obtained a doctorate in canon law from the Catholic University of America School of Canon Law. Father Sean served as assistant professor in the School of Canon Law at the Catholic University of America from 2009 until he joined Franciscan University of Steubenville's theology department as professor in fall of 2012. A member of the Board of Trustees of St. Francis University in Loretto, Pennsylvania since 2010, he also held a position on the Franciscan University Board of Trustees from 2007 to 2012. Please join me in welcoming Father Sean Sheridan. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Uh, during Mr. Riley's talk this morning, he mentioned a friar who's very near and dear to the hearts of uh, many faculty and staff and alumni and students of Franciscan University of Steubenville, Father Michael Scanlon, TOR, who was the fourth president of Franciscan University. Uh, Father Michael died back on January 7th of this year. Uh, and Father Michael, when he came to the university, really focused on reclaiming and emphasizing the Catholic identity of the university, just as you've heard uh, many institutions are trying to do this day. I ask you to continue to pray for Father Michael, uh, that he will be welcomed into the heavenly kingdom, and that we give great thanks to God for sending him to us at the university and helping us in so many ways with uh, a reestablishment, refounding of the Catholic identity of not only our school, uh, but we see the rippling effect of that at other Catholic institutions as well. Just to follow up a little bit uh, on my background uh, from the, the introduction that you just heard, uh, as you probably heard, I have a background in both civil law and canon law. Uh, I had the great privilege of teaching at the Catholic University of America for a number of years uh, in the canon law school there. My dissertation uh, was on the topic of Ex Cordia Ecclesiae. It was called a canonical commentary uh, on Ex Cordia Ecclesiae. Uh, so most of my research in the area of Catholic education, Catholic higher education, has been on somewhat of the intersection between civil law and canon law in that particular area. Uh, and so hopefully we'll be able to point out some of those intersections for you today uh, as we discuss uh, these issues as well. 
Second thing, hopefully by now, you have received a copy of the handout that is being circulated. Uh, this is for you so that we don't have to read through some lengthy quotes that are going to be up on the screen and you may not be able to see them very well, but for you to be able to read uh, whenever you have an opportunity to do so or even if you want to take some notes on there uh, to help you to re remember uh, some of the concepts that come out of our talk today. Uh, and then thirdly, hopefully we'll have a, a little bit of time for some questions uh, at the end as we discuss some of these uh, very important issues today. Uh, you've heard a number of different times this morning about the document Ex Cordia Ecclesiae. Uh, it's the Apostolic Constitution that Pope St. John Paul II uh, promulgated in the year 1990 and really has served as a guiding document uh, for uh, Catholic universities uh, trying to be faithful and minister in the church uh, today. It's a very important document, as you've heard, uh, and this is a quote that comes from the very first paragraph uh, of Ex Cordia Ecclesiae, kind of contextualizing the, the importance of Catholic universities in the world today. Born from the heart of the church, a very important statement. That's where we get that phrase, ex cordia ecclesia, from the heart uh, of the church. A Catholic university is located in that course of tradition, which may be traced back to the very origin of the university as an institution. It has always been recognized as an incomparable center of creativity and dissemination on knowledge for the good of humanity. Really emphasizing the importance and launching all that he wants to say about the great benefit and value of Catholic universities and really his deep desire to see Catholic universities continue to flourish. Now, as I said, Ex Cordia Ecclesia is certainly one of the guiding documents for Catholic universities. Uh, I like to try, and, and when I'm talking to a group like this, to, to help you uh, with your own continuing education and give you some resources that you may want to look at uh, that would further uh, your education on the topic. And a couple of years ago, there is a book that came out from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, their Committee on Education, on Catholic Education, uh, which really encapsulates a lot of different documents from the church, both at the level of the Holy See, the level of the, Episcopal, uh, the uh, Bishop's Conference, the Episcopal Conference, and some other documents that really give a flavor and emphasis to Catholic churches, the, the, the Catholic Church's teaching on Catholic universities. That book is called Catholic Mission and Culture in Colleges and Universities. And it has defining documents from 1965 through the year 2014. Catholic mission and culture in colleges and universities from the USCCB. The good thing is uh, this is readily available from the conference and it contains all of the church teachings documents uh, on Catholic universities. They're also widely available on the, the World Wide Web, the internet, uh, if you choose just to search for some of these documents online. But it's helpful, I think, for, for you to contextualize and understand what we are talking about today by really understanding what the church is saying about Catholic universities. So I encourage you, uh, despite the fact that you might get a lot of good information today, to continue uh, your own formation, your own education about Catholic higher education. Ex Cordia Ecclesiae came out in, on August 15, 1990, uh, and it really uh, brought about some, some uh, important aspects of the church teachings, brought to fruition some important aspects of the church's teaching on Catholic universities. 
I want to focus on one particular area uh, that is covered in Ex Cordia Ecclesiae, and that's the concept of academic freedom. Pope St. John Paul II mentioned academic freedom by name in three different articles in Ex Cordia Ecclesiae. And I believe they're quoted also on the handout that you have, but up here uh, on the slide, we have the, the different things that he said about academic freedom in Ex Cordia Ecclesiae. A Catholic university possesses institutional autonomy and academic freedom, very importantly, the next part of the statement, so long as the rights of the individual person and of the community are preserved within the confines of the truth. Truth becoming a very important word uh, in this understanding of academic freedom. And we'll see a word that is also used by many of the, the members of the secular university world uh, in basing their concept of academic freedom of well. So within the confines of the truth in the common good. And then he repeats that same statement in another article, that academic freedom is important and essential, but it must be conducted within the confines of the truth and the common good. And the last reference that he has to academic freedom in Ex Cordia Ecclesiae says that academics have the full right to expect that civil society, actually it's Catholic universities, have the full right to expect that civil society and public authorities will recognize and defend their institutional autonomy and academic freedom. Catholic universities have the right to expect that civil society and public authorities will recognize and defend their institutional autonomy and academic freedom. Now, based on some of the, the talks that we've already heard this morning, you know that those, those statements are there purposefully. The interaction between institutional autonomy and academic freedom, as we've seen some of the emphasis that came out of the Land O'Lakes statement, talking about the need for that separation of Catholic universities from the church's magisterium and from the oversight by the church's magisterium. But still, there is always this aspect that we will see from the church's perspective that somebody needs to be the final arbitrator. Somebody needs to be the referee. Somebody needs to say when the concepts that are being embraced and promoted are out of bounds. And that's where the church's magisterium comes into play in making sure and preserving what is being taught does not violate what we understand and believe as Catholics. And the bishops have a responsibility to protect us as their followers as well. St. John Paul II very wisely added that academic freedom is always found in the search for truth. The search for truth which in the Catholic Church happens for us to be found in God. Secular universities, secular uh, academics will say they continue to search for truth but they eliminate or they exclude a recognition that God or faith has anything to do with that. And that's where we find, at least as I will submit, that really the fullness of academic freedom can only 
be found in a Catholic university. Because we not only search for truth, but we acknowledge that the source of all truth is found in God himself. And that because the men and women who are scholars at Catholic universities are able to incorporate their faith, to incorporate their beliefs, the fullness of truth is able to come to fruition. Talk a little bit about the development of academic freedom and the concepts, the historical concepts of where that phrase comes from. It actually comes from, from Germany uh, in the late 19th century, where they had two different concepts that related to what we now understand to be academic freedom. And uh, hopefully these phrases are on your handouts as well. Uh, I'm not a German scholar, so I may butch the, butcher these words, so please bear with me. Uh, Learn Freiheit. Uh, in the German tradition talks about the ability of the student to study freely. And that contrasts with Lehrfreiheit, which is the ability of the professor to teach and to research freely. Freely is found in both of them, but it relates to whether it is a, a component dealing with the student or dealing with the teacher who is presenting those teachings to the student. This concept uh, this understanding of academic freedom surfaces uh, in 1915 in a statement that was issued by the American Association of University Professors, which was a new organization in 1915, but really picked up on this concept of academic freedom as understood in the German tradition. That 1915 statement said, the common good depends upon the free search for truth and its free exposition. Looking for the truth and being able to teach it to others, both from the student perspective, searching, and the teacher's perspective, searching, but teaching, sharing it with others uh, as the teacher is inclined to do so. Compared to the statement that we just saw from Ex Cordia Ecclesiae, dealing uh, with academic freedom, saying that a Catholic university's privileged task is to unite existentially by intellectual effort two orders of reality that too frequently tend to be placed in opposition as though they were antithetical. The search for truth and the certainty of already knowing the fount of truth. John Paul is not saying we shouldn't continue to search for the truth, but we know we need to recognize and acknowledge where the source of all of that truth is, and that is our, our own God, our belief in God as well. This statement has been modified on a number of different occasions dealing with academic freedom, the statement by the American Association of University Professors. Uh, in 1940, uh, they came out and recognized that there were certain religiously affiliated institutions that may have some, um, some explaining to do, for lack of a better phrase, about how they approach academic freedom. Back in 1940, all they said was that if you are a religiously affiliated institution and you're going to have some type of limitation on how you present truth at your institution, you need to let your professors know at the time that they are hired. You need to let them know where the, the barriers are, where the limitations are, and what they should say and what they can't say. They were fine with the fact that religiously affiliated institutions could continue to exist and have their own understanding of academic freedom. However, 
they continued uh, to recognize uh, that this, this understanding was somewhat different uh, than what it would be in a secular world. In the 1940 statement, the AAUP said, the purpose of this statement is to promote public understanding and support of academic freedom and tenure and agreement upon procedures to ensure them in colleges and universities. Institutions of higher education are conducted for the common good and not to further the interest of either the individual teacher or the institution of the whole. But the common good depends upon the free search for truth and its free exposition, as we saw there in that statement there on the left. The search for truth, of course, as we saw in Ex Cordia Ecclesia, is found in our search for God, the source and the fount of all truth. Uh, but it also continues to help us to frame how things are taught, how things should be presented. This 1940 AAUP statement had three different tenets specifically dealing with academic freedom. First one said that teachers are entitled to full freedom in research and in the publication of the results, consistent with what we found in the 1915 statement. Teachers are entitled to freedom in the classroom when discussing their subject, also consistent. And then thirdly, when teachers write or speak, they should be free from institutional censorship or discipline, that there should be no outside authority watching over what they're saying and they ought to be able to do anything and say anything as long as they pursue that in, in search of truth within their own uh, uh, limitations of their own discipline. That second one, that second uh, bullet point there, the second tenet, that teachers are entitled to freedom in the classroom when discussing their subject, that's the one where they recognize the limitations that might be found in a religiously affiliated university. And while in 1940 they were okay with that, later on in 1988, they submitted an interpretive comment on this particular tenant dealing with uh, academic freedom at religiously affiliated universities. Time frame between 1940 and 1988, something very significant happens in between the two. In 1967, the Land O'Lakes Statement. In 1988, the AAUP came out and said that if you're a religiously affiliated university and still try to have some type of uh, parameters per, uh, and oversight on what is taught at your university, the interpretive comment suggests you have no right to claim yourself to be of university status because you're not allowing your teachers to have complete, what they understand as complete freedom in what they teach, what they research, and how they present uh, the things taught in their discipline. Certainly that's, that's in a very important statement, a very important statement that many of us would under, say does not really speak to what happens at a Catholic university and the way in which the teachings uh, are presented in a Catholic university. Uh, as I said earlier, it's in the Catholic university uh, that uh, this is very important. Actually, I, I, I back up. That was not 1988. That's 1970 that the interpretive comment came out. I apologize for that. We talked a little bit this morning about the Land O'Lakes Statement, the 1967 Land O'Lakes Statement. And, and you've actually seen this quote a number of different times, or you've heard this quote a number of different times. Now you have it there 
uh, on the paper in front of you, and you can look at it uh, later when you get back at home. But it's worth repeating again for the context in which we're talking about academic freedom. The Catholic University today must be a university in the full modern sense of the word, with a strong commitment to and concern for academic excellence. To perform its teaching and research functions effectively, the Catholic University must have a true autonomy and academic freedom in the face of authority of whatever kind, lay or clerical, external to the academic community. To say this is simply to assert that institutional autonomy and academic freedom are essential conditions of life and growth and indeed of survival for Catholic universities for all, as for all universities. The perception that this separation of the Catholic University from the oversight by the church's magisterium would allow the university to thrive just as other secular universities thrive. Importantly, it goes on to state, however, somewhat of a reversal of roles with the bishops and the church's magisterium vis-a-vis the Catholic University. Landa Lakes also suggests that the university should carry on a continual examination of all aspects and all activities of the church and should subjectively evaluate them. So rather than the bishops and the Episcopal Conference having oversight of what is taught in a Catholic university, they're suggesting that the university should be reaching out and reviewing what they are teaching, the bishops are teaching. Now, there are opportunities to help to advance the teachings of the church, and many bishops will acknowledge that, the importance that theologians have in advancing the church's understanding of the teachings of the church. But ultimately, it's got to be the bishops and the Episcopal conferences, the Holy See, who has the final say on all of those things. As you can see, the Land O'Lakes statement really attempts to blur the distinction between what happens in a secular university and a Catholic university with regard to academic freedom. That they should be identical, that there should be no limitation, there should be no oversight in that concept of academic freedom. Uh, and we've seen that a number of different institutions have disagreed with that and have really tried to remain true and faithful to what the church has, teached, has taught but still to embrace, as Pope John Paul II has said on a number of different times, to engage that dialogue between faith and reason, to bring the two together to help us to understand the fullness of what the church teaches. So at a religiously affiliated university, certainly academic freedom has an important role to play. It's a place where we, the fullness of truth cannot be ascertained without drawing on the principles of faith. The complete understanding of our search for truth must have that component that is found in our search for truth, our search for God himself. Bishop David O'Connell, the former president of the Catholic University of America, uh, when he was the president there, uh, issued, uh, had a talk one time on this concept of academic freedom. And he said, in the Christian scholastic tradition, truth is considered the proper object of the reasoning mind seeking knowledge. The reasoning mind seeking knowledge. That tradition does not exclude the contribution of faith. The reasoning mind does not seek falsehood or error. 
the meaning and urgency of truth, however, are the goals of the believing heart and soul seeking truth's purpose. Truth is not true just because we believe it. The truth is true whether we believe it or not. And that goes back to the fact that the source of that truth is found in God. And that is where we as Catholics are able to find the fullness of truth in God. In practice, as a result, there is actually more academic freedom, I would argue, at a Catholic university than there is at a secular university because a scholar at a Catholic university can incorporate his or her faith into what they are teaching and to live out the faith in the way in which they present themselves in the classroom, in various meetings throughout the institution, and indeed the way they integrate and relate with the students that God presents to them uh, to help them to become the men and women that God created them to be. Uh, Cardinal Don Donald Worrell, who is the neighboring archbishop here at the Archdiocese of Washington, and now the current chancellor of the Catholic University of America, when he was the bishop of the Diocese of Pittsburgh, gave a very similar talk on academic freedom and Catholic higher education. Uh, and he suggested that in the ecclesial model of academic freedom, the propositions of theologians do not universally translate into authentic church teaching. Involved in the wider process is the recognition of the Holy Spirit, which manifests itself in the sensus fidei, the feeling of the faithful, the thought of the faithful, and the final approbation by the bishops, the approval of that teaching by the bishops. The whole church participates in the process according to the gifts and ministries which with the Spirit blesses the church. Each one of us, even came up in the question in the last session, each one of us has a role and responsibility for helping others to understand the teachings of the church. And how we are able to embrace that is according to what our role is in the church. Yours is different than mine because I am a priest. Yours as a member of the laity, you still have a continuing obligation to tell other people what the church teaches, to help them to understand what the church teaches. The bishops aren't necessarily going to hold you as accountable as they're going to hold me because I'm an ordained minister. But each one of us needs to participate in that according to our vocation, our role in the church, and helping to spread the teachings of the church. Yet it remains for the office of the bishop to pass final judgment on the authenticity of any specific teaching proposed as the faith and teaching of the church. Again, it's the bishop who has the final say on all of those things. This concept that uh, uh, Cardinal Wuerl is talking about here in this particular quote will become important later on. There's a document called Resource for Bishops on how to handle uh, discussions and dialogue with theologians. And this is actually repeated uh, in that document. I'll hopefully talk a little bit about that later on in our talk this morning, uh, provided we have enough time to finish that. As a canon lawyer, I always try to bring in the concepts of canon law into any talk that I give uh, to help us because it's the backbone of who we are in the church and, and tries to help us to understand how we approach 
our different roles in the church and the concepts that are embraced therein. The phrase academic freedom is actually never used in the Code of Canon Law, the 1983 Code of Canon Law. But there are a number of canons that deal with issues that embrace a similar type uh, of presentation. Most notably is Canon 218, which talks about the freedom of inquiry and expression of opinions by those who teach the ecclesiastical disciplines, primarily theology, canon law, ecclesiastical history, philosophy, uh, many of those things that are offered, those courses of study that are offered at the Catholic University of America. The church promotes that they have that freedom of inquiry, but it also, that canon specifically goes on to recognize, again, that the bishop needs to uh, be able to have the final say on what they are teaching as to whether or not it is authentic teaching. Canon 386 in the canons dealing with the role of bishops in all of this as being teachers in the church recognizes that the bishop has a role to protect each and every one of us, to protect us from being passed, having passed on to us church te teaching that is contradictory to what the church teaches, to oversee and review those kind of things. Canon 756, paragraph 2, identifies the bishop as the moderator of the ministry of the word in the diocese. He is supposed to be able to oversee everything and comment upon anything that is taught within the diocese, whether from the pulpit, in the classroom, uh, in the CCD classrooms, whatever is taught as being church teaching, he has the ability to oversee that and comment on that. Canon 809 gives the bishops the authority to establish Catholic universities where they are needed. Canon 810 talks about the qualifications for teachers, what teachers who teach in Catholic universities should understand and embrace, but also recognizing they need to live a life that is consistent with what the church teaches. Canon 812, we already have heard referred to today, the requirement of the mandatum that for those who teach the theological disciplines. It's a recognition by the local bishop that the theologian is teaching authentically, consistent and in communion with what the church teaches. There are a number of other documents that the church has issued which help the bishops to be able to regulate what is being taught. This one came out in 1997 from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is one of the dicasteries uh, over in the Holy See. And it's a document called Regulations for Doctrinal Examination. When an issue arises with regard to the teaching of a theologian within a particular diocese, either a member of the faithful is able to raise a concern to the bishop or the bishop himself is able to raise that concern to the Holy See and request that some type of an examination would take place to help them to, again, protect the faithful entrusted to their care. There are two different procedures in there. This is, this is really the, the kind of essential components of the procedure, um, but it, it's not necessary that we go through them all here this morning, but know that you, the bishops can act quickly or they can study the teaching of the theologian to come to uh, uh, an opportunity to have the theologian respond before commenting publicly on that particular work. There are penalties for it that, that, that can be imposed, but even with the recognition of the ability to impose penalties, it still imposes 
uh, uh, somewhat of a dialogue and recognition that there should be efforts to safeguard and promote the faith with respect to the rights of the faithful, but also to continue to respect the rights of the theologian as well, uh, to treat them fairly and with due process uh, before commenting publicly uh, on anything that they have written. Here in the United States, uh, the predecessor to the USCCB was the National Conference of Catholic Bishops. And in 1989, they issued a document called Doctrinal Responsibilities, which was an effort to bring together theologians and the bishops uh, to talk about concerns about teaching and to be able to exchange ideas, informal discussion, formal dialogue, agreement on particular issues that need to be formally examined, uh, and then how to possibly resolve that uh, dispute. Doctrinal responsibilities is purely voluntary uh, between the bishop and the theologian who's at question. Uh, and there's no binding responsibility for either of them to participate in this. But it is uh, a document, a procedure, that is possible to be used in these types of situations. There have been a number of recent applications of uh, 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 different reviews by authorities in the church on various church uh, the theologians and uh, others writing uh, within the church. Uh, somebody mentioned Charlie Curran this morning who used to teach at the Catholic University. That was one that went on for a number of years. I have on the slides and in your, in your handout two of them that happened very recently within the last 10, 15 years. Uh, one was uh, a work written by Sister Margaret Farley who was teaching at the Yale School of Divinity. It was a book called Just Love, A Framework for Christian Sexual Ethics. This was a, a book that was reviewed uh, by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and utilizing the examination in cases of urgency uh, because they felt that there were such errors in the book that needed to be uh, addressed quickly and to protect the faithful from relying on those principles. They said the book cannot be used as a valid expression of Catholic teaching either in counseling and formation or in ecumenical and in, in interreligious dialogue. Another book within the last 10 years was Sister Elizabeth Johnson's book, Quest for the Living God, Mapping Frontiers in the Theology of God. This book was reviewed by the USCCB's Committee on Doctrine. Uh, and there was a series of dialogue that went back between uh, Sister Johnson and the committee. Cardinal Worrell was in charge of the committee at the time, talking about the book. Uh, and some of the issues that were found in the book. And this committee itself, it, their, their statement said, the book does not take the faith of the church as its starting point. Instead, the author employs standards from outside the faith to criticize and to revise in a radical fashion the conception of God revealed in scripture and taught by the magisterium. The doctrine of God presented in Quest for the Living God does not accord with authentic Catholic teaching on essential points and thus should not be relied upon as authentic Catholic teaching in those areas. Interestingly, in the, in the discussion that went back and forth, there was a suggestion that was made that had Sister Elizabeth Johnson sought from her local bishop an imprimatur, which is essentially the review of the book prior to publication. Imprimatur is the bishop's uh, permission, essentially saying, let the work be published after it's been reviewed uh, by a theologian and then independently, uh, by the bishop himself, he thought they thought that this may have been resolved prior to the actual publication. Uh, and because the book did not submit it for review for the imprimatur, 
Uh, they recommended that in the future, uh, persons, even if not required, dealing with these types of theological issues should submit the work uh, for review by the local bishop. Uh, in, in the dialogue that happened in this circumstance, one of the things that Sister Elizabeth raised was that uh, they did not use the procedure that the NCCB had called doctrinal responsibilities. Uh, and the Committee on Doctrine emphasized that they're not obligated to use it. They reemphasized the fact that doctrinal responsibilities is a purely voluntary procedure that can be used, but nobody is required to use it. In conjunction with this, the review of Sister Johnson's book, the Committee on Doctrine presented this resource. It's called Bishops as Teachers, a Resource for Bishops. This one is not found in this book on Catholic mission and culture in colleges and universities, but it is available on the bishop's website if you choose to read it. It's actually very helpful, it's very practical, and it talks about a lot of the things, the concepts with regard to academic freedom and how the bishops are supposed to relate uh, with the theologians who are presenting teachings that may be consistent with what the church teaches. The, the sports analogy that uh, Bishop Worrell used, and, and it, it appears that he's the primary author of the document, but uh, it comes out under the auspices of the committee, refers back to that talk that he gave when he was the Bishop of Pittsburgh, at least in substance, of how to approach these things. And he, he uses the sports analogy. Once ideas are written and published by a theologian, they must stand on their own. It is the bishops who are entrusted with the office of referee who must call the play. It is the responsibility of the bishop to make the call and to declare, if necessary, that certain notions are out of bounds, the bounds of Christian revelation. So that again goes back to emphasize the importance of the bishop overseeing what is being taught in his diocese. When we talk about this, this component of academic freedom, it's certainly an important, an important thing that we need to continue to support. We need to continue to advance, both at secular universities, but also very importantly at Catholic universities as well, making sure that we are recognized as being uh, truly scholarly, truly advancing the teachings of the church, but also recognizing our roles, recognizing the role of the bishops and helping us to protect the faithful as well. In that same document, uh, the one talking about the role of the bishops, uh, the Committee on Doctrine uh, made this statement that I think really encapsulates the importance of academic freedom for all of us, particularly at Catholic universities. They said the legitimate academic freedom of Catholic theologians then is understood like any other freedom with its own appropriate limits and its own ordering to human flourishing. At times it may seem to conflict with the pastoral freedom and in fact the pastoral obligation of the bishop to protect the authenticity of the faith and the spiritual good of the faithful. Nevertheless, when goodwill is present on both sides, when both are committed to the truth revealed in Jesus Christ, their relationship can be one of profound communion as together they seek to explore new implications for the deposit of the faith. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, 
please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.